Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Static passing to another player is an entirely different skill than, for example, passing on the run or passing under pressure. Rugby Coach Weekly presents The Coaching Knife, where we cut to the root, cut out the fluff and challenge the masters of their domain to cut to the chase. Welcome to The Coaching Knife, where we cut to the root of the matter. In this episode, we speak to sports scientist and assistant professor at UMCG, John Franson. Focusing on applying science to coaching, we're going to cut to the root on how to improve skill acquisition. Job, are you ready for the knife? Yes, then. A bit scared, but definitely excited. What is skill? A skill, if you if you boil it down to its bare essentials, then it's the ability to perform in any context, whether you're playing against a strong opponent, a weaker opponent in position A or B, as a youngster or an older person, if you can perform in all of these contexts and adapt to them, then you are considered skillful. Okay, so can you give me an example of a skill then? Yeah, so if you can pass on the run, as well as statically, as well as under huge amounts of defensive pressure, as well as in a two-on-one where you're running really quickly, if you can apply passing in all of these contexts, then you are a skilled passer. Okay, so, um, but let's say you're starting out as um, in any sport. At what stage do we know that you've got a skill? I mean, because let's say you've arrived at, um, at a sports ground I mean, we're obviously, uh, uh, I've got a rugby context, but it could be any sport. And you're given a ball. How do we know you've got the skill? Yeah, very few people start out as skillful. Of course, we we all know people who are inherently skillful, right? You you know, these kids who can juggle a ball a hundred times by the time they're three, etc., and um, they possess some aspect of skill, but most of us do not possess that uh, that skillfulness initially. So, so just going back to that then, so um, we have some skill already, despite the fact that we've never seemingly practiced it. Yes, yes, that's correct. Some of us are just innately better at, for example, coordinating our limbs to to conduct a particular passing movements while movement while others are not that might be partially due to some exposure you've had to it perhaps uh, your parents were playing rugby and you were watching it as a young kid and you've kind of replicated whatever you've seen there or perhaps you just have a good innate level of fundamental coordination and you're applying that to a new task but in essence most people start off as being unskilled and skill is something that you acquire or develop or that emerges over time. And for some people that happens really quickly and for others that happens quite slowly. So, um, so you've used three words there, uh, which in, in a sense, they each have some quite, uh, quite significant meaning. So you can acquire skill. It can emerge. How else? And it can develop and develop. Okay, so let's 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 go let's go through what why are they all three different? Yeah, so development is usually where we start, right? Anyone who has uh, small infants 
know that at some point in time, they develop the skill of sitting upright. At some point in time, they develop the skill of reaching and grasping for objects. Anyone who has multiple infants also knows that this developmental process doesn't happen at the same time for everyone. Right? So it's kind of something that naturally emerges because of the environment the child is in. Imagine putting a child just in a cot with no toys whatsoever. It is likely to assume that a reaching and grasping skill emerges at a different time than when a child has lots of things to reach and grasp. That's what manufacturers of prams use to kind of entice you to buy all kinds of kids' toys. So that's development and emergence. Then you also have the acquisition process. And the acquisition process is usually something we relate to a specific manipulation. So if a coach designs your practice session for you um, to learn how to pass, then over time, as you do or as you participate in this practice session a lot, you acquire that skill. But it's important to note that a skill that is acquired can also disappear again. It's not just something that you have and then have for the rest of your life. You have to maintain it so it is retained over long periods of time. So if you are trying to get someone to become more skillful, you can either help them acquire it or you can help it allow it to emerge. Or am I creating a a false dichotomy there? Um, No, because in some environments, we know that with very little intervention from a coach, skills can emerge just from the environment. For example, um, if you have a lot of small objects and balls lying around in your house, then it is much, much more likely that your child is picking up these balls, throwing them a certain distance. Therefore, the skill of upper arm coordination kind of that you know for or require for throwing emerges potentially more quickly than if you wouldn't have those lying around. But at the same time, as a coach, you can create an environment where a child needs to throw at a particular target and does that repetitively over time. And as such, they can acquire that skill of throwing as well. Repetitively has some good and bad connotations in skill. Can you just uh, tell us a bit more about what you mean by repetitively, which is going to help? Yeah, I always do that in the same way. We tend to assume that practice makes perfect. So the more you practice, there's this linear relationship with the better you get. If I practice for one hour, I get better. If I practice for two hours, I get twice as good. If I practice for 10 hours, I get five times as good as if I practice for two hours. However, what we know about becoming skillful is that that relationship with practice time is actually not as linear as we believe it is. So even though repetition is probably the most important thing to becoming more skillful, you have to have some sort of exposure to a task, whether that's accidentally or designed by a coach. It is not the case that if you train more, you actually become increasingly more skillful. In in fact, if we look at the sort of developmental curve of becoming more skillful, then we see that that curve is actually full of plateaus. It's full of regressions. It's full of steep increases in skill where all of a sudden you learn a new aspect to a skill. You become skillful really quickly and then you plateau for a very long time until you become again more more skillful or you regress um, when you're trying to, to, to apply or learn a different technique that you probably didn't know uh, yet before. So, so skill learning is not just the result of repetition. It's a result of repeating a particular task and understanding that that comes with regressions, plateaus and progressions. 
coach turns up on uh, with a bag of balls and a bunch of players. They can't just throw the balls onto the uh, pitch and let the players completely just do their own thing. I mean, even the most loose and imaginative coach would say that I have to do something. I think the problem for many coaches is how much do they intervene? And some will over-intervene and some will under-intervene, if that is a term. Give us some clues on where we might want to start to just help in terms of skill acquisition on intervention in that sense. Yeah, so first of all, pure self-discovery practices like you were describing now, throw all the balls on the field and say, you just do your thing. They usually don't work because they require certain psychosocial skills from your players, right? They require a certain amount of autonomy to practice. And, and a lot oh, that's of right. Players, so, so just give the psychosocial skills. What does that mean? Yeah. So for example, the autonomy to practice, the willingness to practice by yourself is what's called a psychosocial attribute or a right. psychosocial skill, which we know is important for talent. So if you don't actually want to put in the work or you don't actually want to practice or you don't understand how to practice or you're trying to model something that you've seen somewhere which is ineffective and you don't understand that it's ineffective, your practice is basically going nowhere. So if you just throw the balls on the field, you're assuming that everyone knows more or less how to practice. And that's not the case. We know that's not the case. So something that's recommended often is guided self-discovery. It's where a coach still guides the session, right? And for example, they might throw the balls out on the field and they might say, You are the blue team. You are the yellow team. Everyone picks up a ball, right? And there's, you know, one player who doesn't have a ball and that player has to stop at least one of the opposition team players and take away that ball. And then the the coach takes away another ball and the the game restarts. As a result, the coach is guiding the players to the behavior that they want to see, which is evasive behavior or being able to take away the ball or positioning right, et cetera, or whatever a coach wants to do. But at the same time, they're not leaving the players to their own devices and saying, oh, I'm relying on your autonomy to do whatever you um, whatever you need to do to get better. Now, the coach obviously has to be quite skillful in understanding what they're trying to see there. Uh, at what stage are they jumping in to help this? I mean, an- another coach might say, well, here's, here's evasion, but this is so loose. Is, is skill really emerging here at the pace? Can we accelerate that pace or should I just let it happen naturally? Just as much as we'd love to force our children to walk uh, and talk faster, but really to a certain extent, we can only just nudge them on that, uh, on that path. Yeah. So, so we know the coach can have a great influence, right? But the fact is, what are you actually influencing? And, and one of the things we often talk about is the distinguish or distinguishing performance and learning. So imagine a coach in the same situation we had before who, and coaches often do this, who stops the game and who provides feedback, two minutes worth of feedback to the players, telling them what to do, then goes back to the sideline and sees all of a sudden that these players are actually exhibiting the behavior that they were just talking about. They were giving feedback and the feedback has in some way changed the behavior to something that the coach likes to see. What the coach then often does is they infer that the players are actually learning the behavior that they just talked about. But what is in fact happening 
is the coach is creating boundaries around the game. So rather than loosely guiding it, they are very tightly guiding it. They are only, they are manipulating the game in such a way that the players can only inhibit, uh, exhibit a certain amount of behaviors. Therefore, what they are actually doing is guiding performance and not necessarily guiding learning because the learning comes from the self-discovery aspect of the players engaging in the game, understanding that if they're flat-footed, they can't react very quickly to another player coming towards them. And if you learn that yourself implicitly, which means in the absence of very rule-driven behavior, then that behavior that you learn is more robust against forgetting over time, more robust against stress, which means that you can apply it more easily to other contexts, which again brings us back to the definition of skill that we had in the beginning, which is the ability to adapt to a wide range of, of contexts. Now, we're, we're saying to these people, uh, players uh, on the field, they're becoming more skillful at, say, evasion. Mm-hmm. Can you become more skillful a- as a whole, or do you need to become more skillful at the specific sport? So we've, what we've got is we've got more skillful people, but not necessarily more skillful players. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point. It makes a distinction between being a good mover, for example, or being a good rugby player. And I think... Most coaches or or practitioners who are listening to this have examples of players who are good movers. They are well-coordinated. They are quick. They are fast. They are strong, but they are not good rugby players. They can't apply those fundamental kind of principles or fundamental attributes to the game of playing rugby. So when we talk about skill and expertise, we know that skill and expertise are hugely domain-specific, right? So it's very difficult to apply a sort of fundamental skill, being quick, to being quick with a ball and evading evading opponents. Sure, if you perform at a very low level, that's fine, right? You can be really quick and always go around the outside and score, etc. But when it comes to a more homogenous group of performers, being quick, only being quick and not being quick with the ball or being quick in a rugby sense no longer serves you right. So once you get to the pointy end of the expertise spectrum, that's when you really have to be skillful at playing rugby, skillful at passing, skillful at evading, and just being generally fundamentally skillful is no longer enough. Now, as a coach, you're now thinking, I've got to give them some specific sports-specific skills. Mm -hmm. How am I going to give sports-specific skills? And I'm just going to pose a thought here is that some coaches or many coaches will be saying, right, we will break this down into, and I'm going to say a drill, but it's going to be a repetitive activity where you're going to be doing the same, roughly the same movement every single time, uh, maybe five to 10 times. Yeah. So so how does that, how does that help or does it hinder skill development? uh, Good point. Because if, if we take that and we, we apply that to a specific example, let's say that, you know, something I played rugby myself, something we had to do way too much of was just statically passing to one another from the hip and throwing and following through the hands and doing it over and over and over again. And the coach would say, no, no, this is really good for your passing development. But what we actually know now is that static passing to another player is an entirely different skill than, for example, passing on the run or passing under pressure. And if we apply our original definition in the beginning of this podcast about being skillful, being adaptable, then actually repeating the same movement over and over and over again 
doesn't make you more adaptable. It only makes you being able to perform that skill more efficiently in that specific context, under that specific amount of pressure, in this specific situation. But it doesn't say anything about how you could do it when the context changes. And that's exactly what we want. So the coach that uses this kind of practice might you know, be encouraging a player to have more confidence in throwing or might be encouraging a player to kind of detect some basic movement attributes or some basic attributes of technique that then they can, you know, go off and and practice by themselves at home with their parents or whatever. But they are not, in fact, encouraging learning because learning is the adaptability of that skill. Are are we saying then that standing still and passing the ball isn't going to improve skill acquisition. It's hugely valuable, right? Because imagine that you do it a lot and you start believing as a child that you are a good passer. You are then more likely to actually use that pass in a game where it matters. If you don't believe you can do it, if you don't have the self-perception of skillfulness, right? then you are highly unlikely to also throw that pass during a game. Now, is there a direct translation between passing 100 times back and forth statically and then being able to do it in the game, other than increasing someone's self-awareness or self-perception and encouraging them to do it, I don't think so. It doesn't actually encourage learning or skill acquisition. It encourages the confidence to then be able to use those skills later. And that's it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a controversial topic because nowadays we have a whole movement where all of the sudden skills can only be applied within a game context etc but what i'm actually arguing is that we forget that there's and, and this is called a social affective component to learning as well which is if i don't think i can do it i'm never going to use this skill so this whole passing back and forth can just be about building confidence so really, uh, a, a, good, a good practice has a whole range of activities. Some of them are, in a sense, and uh, you, you might well correct me on this, some in a sense are not specifically about the skill acquisition. They aren't allow you to get to a situation where you feel confident enough to run and pass. So a new player arrives, uh, whatever sport, if they are running and passing, it's a lot of coordination, a lot of activity, a lot of things go on your mind. And you, you're going to think, I've got to run and pass. It's like when you start to drive, you, you, you try and get the, the clutch control and someone says, you've got to steer. You've got to steer as well. So we build confidence to allow us to move to the next stage where, I mean, both are learning. But one is learning in the context of the game. One is learning statically, but one is learning in the context of the game. And that gives us the confidence to be able to acquire the skills of the game. Absolutely. And I think the the best advice we can give the coaches here is try to put yourself in the place of someone who's learning this skill anew. Right. When you were saying running and passing at the same time, the coordination demand of that skill is so, so high. Right. The, the best way of thinking about it is imagine your grandma doing it, even though your grandma might have been capable of doing it when she was 35 or 40 or 50, etc. Her skill has declined by such a degree that she's no longer capable of doing it now. Ne- neither is a child. A new child that's entering your training session is usually not capable of running and throwing at the same time, right? So there's no point putting them in this situation if they are unlikely to use that skill. So the best thing to do is to get them used to the static passing. There's nothing wrong 
with static drills. People keep saying, no, no, we should shy away from drills. We should shy away from drills. If that's the only thing you're doing, you're likely not encouraging learning in the context uh, of applying those skills to, to varying contexts. But if that is something you are doing alongside other exercises that are a bit more applicable to the game or a bit more in a game context, then there's nothing wrong with a drill. I don't understand why people have such a sort of harsh feelings against drills. As long as it's not the only thing you're doing, it's fine. And also the balance is different between novices and experts. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you are already skillful at passing, there's no point doing a static throw a hundred times back and forth because you can use, I always say, if that's the kind of drill you have to spend 15 minutes on with experts, then you're better off resting 15 minutes more, right? Or actually applying it in more of a game-like context. And another thing, and, and this is not something we've discussed before yet, but another thing that I think will be really relevant to coaching is understanding the concept of sequencing, right? Rugby is a game of possession, being in possession and being out of possession. So for example, right, if you have a static passing drill, what you're actually doing is you're maintaining ball possession for the whole duration of the drill. While in fact, the real art of playing rugby is the ability to position and reposition as you gain and lose the ball. So even a static drill could be improved by including, for example, a phase in which you have to pass, but then transition to defensive behavior, pass again, transition to defensive behavior. It builds confidence, likely does very little for learning, but it builds confidence and it kinds of creeps closer and closer to game-specific aspects. Okay, brilliant. And obviously, uh, we could delve a lot deeper into all of this and uh, take ourselves into different places. But this is a great introduction to uh, and thoughts around skill acquisition. So Job is also a fellow at UTS Sydney and a skills acquisition consultant. His philosophy is to encourage as much as possible the spread of excellent information in the field of skill acquisition science to coaches and practitioners. You can contact him on LinkedIn, Job Franson, that's F-R-A-N-S-E-N, or Job Fran 3 on Twitter. And we're going to finish with some questions. Job, how old are you? I'm 35. Uh, what coaching book is by your bedside? Uh, none. I don't read any coaching literature, really. I do enough of it in my <laughs> professional life. Okay, so do you have a book by your bedside? I'm currently reading Congo, which is a book on the kind of colonial history um, of the Belgian Congo. All right. Uh, which coach teacher are you loving at the moment? I actually learn the most from, uh, from students as they're delving deeper into these topics. I'm learning more and more from them. So, Okay. Uh, which team or sport or subject would you love to coach at the moment? I would love to go back to teaching Omnisport. So organizations where you teach different sports to kids and they constantly switch between sports and they compete and train in those sports. I used to do that and it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, who's inspired you most? At the moment, I think uh, Jane Clark's work, which is, uh, for example, if people are interested, uh, search The Mountain of Motor Development uh, by Jane Clark. Okay. And what would you tell your 20-year-old self to do more of? Don't worry that much and just go with the flow. Okay, right. I'm going to worry a lot less and go with the flow. Thanks, Joe. That's been brilliant. Really enjoyed that. Thanks, Dan. That was fun.